Welcome back to Sunday Night Study. I am not, admittedly, a real emotional person. I don't... It's rare that I cry at funerals. I didn't cry at my grandfather or my grandmother's, although I love them deeply. Um, I don't cry at movies. Uh, but there are times, and you know if you've heard me preach that, and it happened this morning, um, where it just something uh, pierces right through and moves me in a way that I don't plan for it to happen because, quite frankly, it's embarrassing to me. I, I kind of figured this might happen because um, earlier this week, one of the days, Wednesday or Thursday, we were driving to one of Christie's appointments. And I knew what I was talking about this week, and I was thinking about that. And the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, and how that's such a perfect response by Jesus. And uh, I got weepy in there, there in the car driving down Kellogg. And usually that's not the emotion of choice on Kellogg for me. Um, but Christy was next to me. She's like, what? what what's, what's wrong? I, you know, for full disclosure, I pretty much only cry when my femur's broken. But outside of that, so she knew. And I said, I just cannot get over this this beautiful picture of Jesus perfectly just and perfectly merciful and that is exactly what the church needs to be and um so um tonight i want in the same way that as we focus on Christ it should move us it should somewhere within our being move us. It moved you to become a Christian. Hopefully he moved you to become a Christian. And as we move forward in our sanctification, there should be those times when the call of Christ moves us in a powerful way. Not always will that response be emotional. Sometimes it, it will, that, that call will cause us to Say, no, I don't need to be working at that job anymore. Do I have another plan? No, I don't. But Christ does not want me to be there. Um, sometimes it will, it will intrude into our lives in so many ways. I had a young man this morning, afterward, privately, who's, who's struggling with some of the things that we talked about this morning. And I could just tell he was... He was ready to make some serious changes, to do what Jesus had called him to do. And I was moved by that. And I had a couple of grandparents specifically ask for prayer for their grandson who struggled with some of the things and has been living in some of the ways that we talked about this morning. So 
So tonight's lesson is a better calling. And I, I want you to follow along for a few scriptures and hopefully this will not make us late for supper. Second um, Corinthians chapter 5. First scripture, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, in the context here, uh, what we call Second Corinthians is actually probably uh, not Second Corinthians. It's probably uh, number three or four in a series of letters back and forth between he and the, the Christians there at Corinth. And um, much of Second Corinthians is Paul's being pleased with their response to what we call First Corinthians, which may or may not be the first letter, but their, their response was apparently sincere. We talked this morning about celebrating over repentance, and that's much of what Second Corinthians is. And Paul spends a lot of time focusing forward, focusing future. <clears throat> and he, he talks about the new heavenly dwelling, our home in heaven and all of that. But then in verse 16 and following, he kind of, he kind of brings it down to us. And, and how we're changed as a result of this. So, Second Corinthians chapter 5, 16. Paul talking about being new creatures and our new calling in Jesus. From now on, he writes, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, Paul, no doubt, is thinking of his former life as a Pharisee and, a, and, and trained and knowing the law and, and everything that he would have formerly been prideful about. Now he looks at those things almost um, in maybe an embarrassing way to him of thinking about his former self. And he says, now we have in Christ a new reconciliation. Now we are in the ministry of reconciling people, of, <laughs> of bringing two things that were not in agreement back into agreement. This is an, an, an old illustration, so I apologize. It probably doesn't apply to anyone. When was the last time you, you reconciled your checkbook? For those of you not aware, a checkbook was a tiny piece of paper that you could... It was like an IOU from the bank. But anyway, <laughs> you, you, would, you would write all these checks. I mean, just willy-nilly. Here go the checks, okay? But then there had to come this point of reconciliation. The bank would say, hey... This is how much money. And you'd look at that statement and go, that can't be right. (laughs) You'd go through and you'd go, oh, I did write that check. And there was that. Okay, and there's that. And you would go through this process of reconciling what you thought, how much money you had, and what the bank said you had. Two things out of agreement back into alignment. That's what reconciliation is. Reconciliation from a much better perspective than financial, is God saying, this is how far you are from me. And us saying, there's no way I can be that bad. And and God says, okay, reconcile it. And go, oh, yeah, I did do that. I did say that. Oh, I'm sorry for that. 
And the worst part of it is you can't even, you can't even make it right. In the old days when you reconciled it, you had to say, okay, the bank was right, <laughs> add back in $20. But in God's reconciliation statement, you can't do anything about it. You're out of reconciliation. You're, you're complete, completely out of alignment with the Father. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's why he sent his son. To bring all things that were out of alignment back into alignment to God for those that will submit themselves to Christ. And then, once he reconciles us, he says, now, you need to share that with other people. People who are trying to be righteous by their own standards. People who are trying to be, uh, earn, do enough good works to, to, to make themselves feel good. People who live in constant regret and constant fear of dying. You need to be about the ministry of reconciling. Verse 19, that is, in Christ. Christ was reconciling God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's God's reconciliation process. And to even wrap your mind around it is hard to do, but God, right there in verse 21, says it, for, his, for our sake he made him who be no, to be sin, who knew no sin. God took all of the list of the things you owed him, and Jesus paid for that. And his last word from the cross, or three words in the English, it is finished, is one word in the Greek, to telesta, and one translation of that, and you've heard it before, is paid in full. He did that for us. And so in him we can be declared righteous and we have the opportunity to be ambassadors for that message. So we're new creatures now. We have a new calling we have to fight to remain free. Freedom is not something that happens naturally. I, I think this is true politically, relationally. <laughs> you want to be free from anything, you have to work at it. You have to remain constantly vigilant. And the same is true with sin. And so, we've been freed from sin, and we have to be constantly vigilant. Because sin sings a siren song and her song doesn't stop after you go under the water. She still beckons every day. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So how do we do that? All right, well, let me give you four things that I think will help in your new calling as a Christian. Whether you've been a Christian one week or 40 years, I think these things will be useful. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. A 
I'm going to start reading verse 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are called, this is number one, to put off the old self. Jesus will use stronger language, crucify, kill, murder the old self, which is wicked and, 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 and violent. But there is no compromising with evil. You can't you can't do it. It doesn't work. We think we can. If you have good and evil, good people think well we can just reason with evil. That's not evil will push and push and push and push until you finally say enough. Well, you have the same battle within you. The old self and the new self in Christ. And the old self of, of you is a kind of like a zombie-like creature. You kill it and it seems to keep coming back, to keep returning with those desires and those thoughts. And so it's a continual process of putting off, of crucifying the old self. When Jesus said... Grace was asking me about this the other day. She found a, she was reading the Bible and was reading where Jesus said, take up your cross. And she said, Dad, what is, what are we talking about there? It was a really good question for a 13-year-old. I said, well, when you and I think of crosses, we think of religion and faith and all of that. But to those people, a cross simply meant one thing, and that was a public death there was no denying um, that that person was dead and and Rome used it obviously to send a message when Jesus used it he's saying you got to follow me it is a it is a complete death not just here but walking in it every day dis- determining and deciding I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm putting off the old self. I'm, I'm designed, I'm called to, to be the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. A physical example. <laughs> I've got two Tobys inside me. I've got a 150-pound Toby and a 400-pound Toby. Okay, and I'm the result of these two Tobies. Okay, um, four hundred pound Toby 
is, uh, uh, he seems like such a simple creature to kill because he really, he basically sleeps all day and he, and he awakes about the last four hours of the day and all he wants to do is eat. And he will do anything to eat. 150 pound Toby, he's good. He's, he drinks the water, does the exercise, and eats the right things and watches himself and all that. Every day I go through this battle recently where, you know, 400-pound Toby puts me to bed and 150-pound Toby wakes up in the morning. It's a new day. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to drink the water and do the stuff and do the things. And listen, I am today in the middle of those two because I've tried to have both. I've tried to reconcile. I've tried to compromise 150-pound Toby thinks he can compromise with 400-pound Toby, and it just doesn't work. That guy will take as much room as he can. He lives only for himself. Paul says, there are two yous inside of you, and the flesh and the spirit. Here he calls it the old self and the new self. And the only way, the calling that you have, is to put off the old self and kill that guy or that lady every single day. Which sounds great and it's easy to preach, but man, it is hard. And I'm not just talking about diet here. The walk is hard, but it is worth it. Number two, we're called to walk in a new way. Ephesians 5, one chapter back. I'm sorry, one chapter forward. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, who has no, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So you're called to put off the old self, and the second is you're called to walk in a new way. Paul here goes at great length, and he doesn't give a comprehensive list of all the ways to walk in darkness. And we can all think of ways to walk in darkness. In the scripture, in the Old Testament, the New, anytime you're referring to someone's walk, you were talking about their life. You weren't talking about 5,000 steps a day. Rose, I don't know how many, you're up to 40 miles a day or something like that that she's walking, but she's doing great. But a walk in the scriptures isn't referring to that kind of walk. A walk, it refers to how you live. And so when Jesus says, take the, the narrow road and not the broad path, he's talking about in how you live. Well, in Ephesians 5, Paul here, who's dealt with all the doctrine in the first three chapters, in the last three chapters, dealing with our practical application of the, of the, the doctrine. And he says, 
no matter how convincing they are, no matter how popular it becomes, do not walk in darkness. Because of, because of that, the wrath of God is coming. Don't even try to negotiate with darkness. Don't become partners with darkness. Don't rejoice at darkness, but walk as children of light. How do we do that? I love the, the last verse. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So, one, we're called to put off the old self. Two, we're called to walk in a new way. To walk in a way that pleases the Lord. So a good question is, as you go along, to ask yourself, is this pleasing to the Lord? In my conversations, in my entertainment, in my relationships, in my work, in my business dealings, is this pleasing to the Lord? That's a pretty good measure of walking in the light. Number three, Colossians chapter three. So we're going to get out of, out of Ephesians. Colossians chapter three, the whole chapter is about putting on the new self. He says this, if then, You've been raised with, or verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Common theme we're seeing here, verse 5, put to death. Therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them all away. So, he says, uh, we're called to think in a new way. We're called to set our minds on higher things than things of this world and things that the world offers us. Um, one of the things that really sticks in my craw as I drive down Kellogg. I, there's a lot of Kellogg in my preaching. I, must, I need to re find a new way, I guess. But as, it, as you're driving from the east to the west, there is, along about West Street, a giant sign that really bothers me. Any idea what it is? You know, it's, it's a one-way conversation, so I'll just tell you. It's the, it's the lottery sign. And here's why the lottery sign gets me, because every time I drive by it, I see the numbers, and because I'm a math guy, my brain starts doing a little figuring. That's a hundred million dollars. Well, let's see. Okay, so the half of that is taxes, and I got fifty million dollars. What am I going to do with fifty million dollars? Well, I'm going to give Northside... I mean, I got plenty, so I'm going to give Northside $10 million, and that'll be anonymous, but I'll give it to Northside. And then, how am I going to divvy up the other 40? And I was going to need this much to live on, leave this much to the kids, you know. You know. I, 
I just I can't help it. That's the way my silly brain works. That's covetousness. That's greed. And I'm wasting the mind that God gave me on things of this world. And I can't stop thinking about it. And that's what the sign's designed to do. And it's pretty effective. Eh, what's the harm in a couple bucks? The thing is, a couple bucks is feeding your greed. A couple bucks is playing into a system that takes extreme advantage of the poor and the uneducated. And that all starts by planting that seed in your mind. We're called to think in a higher way. So, positive example here. I'm not perfect at it, and no one that I know is. But I think one of the best things you can do first thing in the morning is to be in the Word. Nothing against reading the Bible at lunch or at the end of the day, whenever it works for you, okay? But what's good about it first thing in the morning is it gets your brain started on the good and on the things that God wants you to think about. And it can really direct the course of your day as you chew on it throughout the rest of the day. But however you do it, I'm not mad at anybody who reads their Bible in the middle or in the evening or whenever, but make sure that you're calling your minds to a higher place than they are right now. Don't let them sink into earthly things, whether sexual immorality or greed or evil desire or passion or any of those things. Because Paul says again, the wrath of God is coming because of these things. And we're called to think in a higher way. Last one, number four, we're called, First Thessalonians chapter 4, we are called to holiness, not happiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and following. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is the process of holy living. It's the long haul. And this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. The world's argument for anything worldly is that God just wants me to be happy. And that's not in Scripture. God calls us to holiness. Now, I want to say, I, I think as you pursue righteous living, you'll be happier. It's a byproduct of righteous living, but it's not the goal, if that makes sense. That, that if you go the path that Jesus calls you, things will go better for you. I promise I've seen this personal experience. That if we'll do it God's way and go God's way, and, and pursue holiness, we'll be happy. But if we pursue happiness as the chief end, we'll never be holy. 
and will likely never be happy. All right, so those are four things, four ways to live out a better calling. Number one, put off the old self. Kill that guy or that girl. Number two, walk in a new way and commit yourself to it. Number three, put your mind on higher things. Number four, remember that you're called to holiness, not happiness. All right, I hope that will be useful to you and you can think on some of those things. I'm going to offer a prayer as we conclude our study. And I'm going to ask uh, the guys at the back, uh, after the prayer, make sure we shut off the streaming because I've got uh, one more thing that I'd like for us to do before we go dismiss to our meal together, okay? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for you. We're thankful for your love for us, your mercy to us in Christ, your grace shown to us in so many ways and uh, in, war, in, in ways that are impossible to describe with words, your son Jesus. And it's through his name that we humbly come to you today. And thank you for the time of worship that we've had and the time of fellowship with one another and that we're about to have here in this meal and, and, and for the time of, of meeting at your table and singing together and reminding one another of the pr- true promises which you have given. Lord, today has filled our cup with the things that you desire for it to be filled with. Lord, I know there are for some tough things coming this week, things which will drain and deplete, things which the enemy will try to use. And I pray that your spirit will work within us to remind us of the things that we've shared together today. I thank you for the family here at Northside. Thank you for your body, the beautiful bride of Christ, the church. We ask for your blessing upon the whole church and especially us here at Northside. Continue to bless the family here with the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we love you very much and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us because of your Son. And it's in his name we humbly offer this prayer. Amen.